let's get started tonight. I think everyone's just about settled in. Got your Bible, got your hand up for next week, but tonight we're, we're back for a, a part two on total inability, which we started last week, and we're going to finish tonight. And so again, like last week, a lot to cover, so let's just jump right in and, and get started. And just in case you weren't here last week, I'll give you the, the quick version, update, or recap to get you back up to speed so we, you'll, you'll be along with us today as we, as we finish. We started off last time talking about the will, our human will, the ability to choose and think and act voluntarily. But the, the real question that so many have asked, especially concerning this debate, is, is our will free? Do we have the, the freedom of the will, meaning to make any choice we want, apart from external influencing factors or controlling factors? And most naturally, would you say, yeah, of course, our will sure seems free, especially as Americans, we like to believe in our, our free will. Theologically, many apply that to our ability to, to choose God or reject God. We, we have the freedom to believe or not believe. It sure feels like we do. And when you come to salvation and you believe it, it feels like you made that choice. It was your choice. And, and well, we don't dispute that to a degree. But the thing is, the question, why do so many reject the, the gift of salvation, the offer of eternal life in Christ, if it's just up to our freedom of our will, who would, who would willingly turn that down? It's such a good deal. You have all of your sin and you have eternal life offered, forgiveness. How come so many don't believe it and, and reject God and reject Christ? So it led us to the question of why. Why don't people believe? And a couple of basic answers. Either non-Christians don't believe because they don't want to believe or they don't believe because they can't believe. It's going to boil down to one or the other. People either have a problem in their will, they just aren't willing, or they have a problem in their ability, that they aren't even able, or both, of course. Now, the Arminian, and in the study, we've been looking at these two major schools of thought with these differences, Arminianism and Calvinism. The Arminian would say the former, that non-Christians, they don't believe because they, they just don't want to. It's just a matter of their will. They have the freedom to believe, to not believe, and so they simply choose not to. And therefore, they must be convinced. It's up to us to convince them to believe, to appeal to them, to bend their will, to change their will. But of course, they believe humans are still free in the sense they have this freedom to choose to believe apart from external factors after provenient grace. So the non-Christian has the ability to believe in God. He or she must simply make the free choice to do so. And that choice is entirely theirs to, to make. The Calvinists would represent the latter Namely, that non-Christians don't believe because they can't believe. Or more specifically, they don't want to believe because they can't believe. They have a deeper problem, deeper than their will, namely their ability. They don't actually have the ability to do so. No one doubts that we're free agents, that we act, we have a certain freedom of the will. You're free to do this or that, anything you're able to do. But the Calvinist claims the ability of the will has been diminished such that you're not free to actually choose God. Instead, the will may be better described as bound, bound to sin, bound to Satan. And so if anyone is going to respond and believe, and that's a response you have to make, and that that is a choice you have to make, which is why I said we uphold that to a degree, you must choose to believe. But the Calvinist says, before you can make that choice, God must do something to you. 
release your will, make you alive. We'll, we'll save all that for later. But hopefully you're starting to see some of the fundamental differences between these two belief systems. Well, all that goes to say, last week we started, and the whole point of this lesson five is to figure out, well, which, which of these models is really represented by Scripture, which accords with Scripture. In other words, if the Arminian view is correct, we'd expect Scripture to describe unbelievers in a certain way. We're talking about people before Christ, after the fall, before salvation. Unbelievers should be depicted as once totally depraved, but now, because of this prevenient grace, that they're freed, they're restored. We would expect explicit statements saying they have the freedom to choose God, to do good before God. They've been fully restored in their ability. To the contrary, if the Calvinist view is correct, we'd expect Scripture to describe unbelievers presently as still totally depraved and presently unable to choose to believe in God and be saved. We'd expect explicit statements describing the will, not as free, but as bound. And so the the study that we got into starting last week is simply to just survey the scriptures and see how does the Bible depict the state, the present state of the fallen man, free or bound. If you want to really simplify it, just put it as that. Is the fallen man presently, like right now, even today, Free or bound? Is his will, is his ability free or bound? What does the Bible say? We did a quick survey of some verses Arminians point to to support their notion of free will. And we found actually that that their whole system, it's based off of an implicit teaching. In other words, there's actually no mention, there's zero mention of this, what they call libertarian free will meaning that the total freedom of the will, you're free to to choose anything, even contrary choice, power of contrary choice. There's no verse on that. Rather, they build their whole system off of the fact that God commands us to believe, the fact that God judges people for not believing, and the fact that God desires all to repent and be saved. And so like Arminius himself, he reasoned, look, God, he wouldn't command us to do something we're not able to do. So since we're commanded to believe, we must have the ability to believe. And, and they're, so the, the whole system is built off of basically implicit teaching in Scripture and human reason. Look, no one disputes, like I said, that our will is free to do some things. Everyone believes that. The question is, do we have the, the freedom to choose God, to do good before God, to obey unto salvation? There's actually no explicit teaching in Scripture saying that we do. There's this merely implicitly built off human reason. And at the same time, you might say, well, that, okay, but it still sounds reasonable, right? Would God command us to do something we're not even able to do, like repent and believe? That sounds unreasonable. But again, it doesn't accord with what Scripture explicitly teaches. And we looked at commands like Matthew 5.48, where God, where Christ commanded, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then all the commands to keep the law and all the law. Those are impossible commands. We do not have the ability to keep such commands. And we found that's really a large point of, of Paul's teaching, for example, that God has shut up all under sin so that we're without excuse. People are sinners from birth. We, we don't have the ability to keep God's law perfectly. If we did, Christ died needlessly. 
Why did he come if we had the ability to keep the law perfectly? But to the contrary, Jesus came precisely because we're not able to keep all these commands. We, we don't have that ability because of our fallenness. And that's why we say salvation is entirely by grace. So what we found is, and all this goes to say, the mere presence of commands to believe doesn't actually necessitate that we have the ability, the freedom to do so. Calvinism on the flip side, hey, fully accounts for man's responsibility. Like I said before, you must believe to be saved. You must make that choice. That's a choice, and you must choose to believe. You must repent of your sins and and turn to Christ. And Calvinism fully upholds man's responsibility and accountability to believe. But that responsibility of man does not come at the expense of God's sovereignty. Man's will never thwarts God's ultimate will. God is still ultimately sovereign in salvation. And in fact, he must be, because if he, what, if he weren't, how many people would freely choose to believe? Zero. And that's the whole point of what we've been studying in total depravity and here in total inability. If God didn't do something, if he didn't intervene, with a special grace to open the eyes of the blind and, and set captives free supernaturally, if you didn't do that, how many people would make that choice to believe? Zero. And we'll see that, of course, in the, in the weeks to come, how God does that and what God does in that regard. But far from Scripture describing our fallen state as free, Scripture instead describes our fallen state as bound, lost, blind, deaf, hopeless, and dead. And that is not the implicit teaching of Scripture. That's the explicit teaching of Scripture. And in a couple weeks ago, told depravity, we looked at a ton of verses starting to build this. And then last week, as we began this lesson on total inability, and they, they go together, they're corollaries, we find that the sin condition has gone so far to affect our will. You're, you're a free agent. You're free to do a lot of things, but the sin disease has infected your will and has diminished your will's ability to do certain things. And that includes anything good, anything good before God, anything that merits favor, any act of true righteousness, including believing. You're not free like Adam. We would still say you're free to do whatever you're able to do, but your will is limited by your ability. I trust that makes sense. And if scripture teaches we've actually lost that ability, well, well there you go. We are totally uh, unable. And so the rest of the time tonight, which we're now picking up from last week, is simply do some Bible study and looking at a bunch of verses and seeing what is the explicit teaching of scripture on the state of the unbeliever. Is he described as presently free or presently bound in his sin, in his will, in his ability to believe? Yeah, I will read you out of the scripture, I think, in the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, verse uh, 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Yeah, and we'll see a verse very similar to that today where God... Faith and repentance are described as gifts that God must grant them. That we think of that as being our act, like I chose to believe and repent. 
And you did, but only because God did something first in granting you life and the ability to do so. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, last week we covered most of these passages in John. If you have your hand up from last time, Lesson 5 on Total Inability, you can follow along these verses. If not, you can still follow along, of course. And we're just going to go through the, the list of verses I gave to you to study in advance. Of course, taking them much deeper now. Not going to rehash too much of what we already covered, but I will point out, you know, some of those strong verses in John 6 from the mouth of the Lord himself. For example, John 6, 37, where Christ says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Three very parallel verses and, and Christ teaching on ability. It's not actually about our will, but God's will. Whom has the Father given to the Son? And Christ makes an explicit statement on ability when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father gives them, draws him. And God doesn't draw everybody, which we also found. This is a Christ teaching on limited ability unless God intervenes. And so he says in verse 65, For this reason I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. God must, like Joe just said, God must grant something for you to go, for you to believe. We also saw John 8, 41 through 43. Christ rebuked them for not believing. And he says, verse 30, 43, Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Why can't they hear? He says, well, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. We see verses that, that take that te- teaching even deeper about our enslavement to, to sin and to Satan himself. We saw John 14, and then uh, I don't actually think we got to Matthew 11, so let's turn there. Let's just start here. And we'll go to Matthew 11 and just start making our way through. Hopefully, I think we'll get through it all today. But Matthew 11, one more verse from the Lord himself. Where he says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And then he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills. To reveal him. Notice this is a, a stunning verse on Christ's own deity. He says, Nobody knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. So nobody knows God except the Son. And he says, Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It, see, the issue is not your will, it's actually God's will. It's the Son's will. Who does he will to reveal God to? It's up to his will. It's up to the Father's will to determine who he gives to the Son. It's up to the Son's will to determine whom he gives to the Father. We know they have the same will. And it's not everybody. You know, notice in verse 28, the verse after, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You might remember that's one of the verses we read the Arminians used to support the notion of the freedom of, of our will. See, we must be able to come because Jesus invites us to come. We don't dispute that. All are invited to come. It's just the explicit teaching of Scripture is who will freely respond to the universal call to come? 
The call is universal. Who's going to heed the call? Only those whom the Father has drawn. Only those whom the Son has willed to reveal. You know, they skip over the verse before. God, keep in mind, he doesn't draw us against our will. First, he regenerates. He makes alive. He opens the, the eyes of the blind. He makes the will willing through new birth. And then we choose to repent and believe of our new will. Who wouldn't when your eyes are opened? It's, it's your choice at that point. But God acts first. And that, of course, is what this whole study is about. Now, so that's the teaching of Christ. That kind of caps off from last week. Let's move on now to equally relevant verses later on. Turn to Romans 6. Remember, our, our goal here is to look at verses which explicitly address fallen man. Man, you could say B.C., before Christ. After the fall, but before salvation. And so here in Romans 6 is a, a key passage that describes us, even, before salvation. But this speaks directly to what we're trying to get at, namely the present state of fallen man. How does the Bible presently describe fallen man? Romans 6 Look at verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And he goes on and, and, uh, you know, verse 22, for example, having been freed from sin and a slave to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. And then the famous verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But pay attention here to how we were described before our salvation, which is the same as the still present state of the unbeliever. And the key phrase here, obviously, is enslaved to sin. It's not a light term. We were enslaved to sin. It doesn't sound free. It sounds the exact opposite. Enslaved is literally the opposite to free. It's powerful imagery. And you also notice, he's talking about us who are saved. How did we believers exit our imprisonment? Ours was not an independent emancipation. We were not freed of our own will. Notice we were passive. It says every time we were freed. We didn't free ourselves. We didn't choose to free ourselves. We were freed. We were acted upon. It's in the passive every time. The agency of this freedom was our belief in the gospel. But it's very clear God does the freeing. It's like your soldier. You're behind enemy lines. You're in a, a POW prison. You find... One of your your fellow soldiers, he's chained to a wall. You want to escape, and you can tell him, hey, come with me, let's run away, let's get back to base as much as you want. But unless you unchain him from the wall, he can't go anywhere. He's free to move around the, the limits of his chains, but unless he's unchained, he can't go anywhere. Similarly, to be saved, you must run into the arms of Jesus, so to speak. You must believe But unless you're unchained first, you can't go anywhere. You're not going to do it because you don't have the ability. Let's keep going. Romans chapter 8. A few more in Romans here. Here's another 
BC passage before salvation. In an explicit passage where he's contrasting those in the flesh versus those in the spirit. So this is exactly what we're looking at. Those in the flesh, the unbeliever. Romans 8 verse 5. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's another massive passage describing all of us before salvation and those who don't know the Lord. We're described as being in the flesh, walking in the flesh, that that is in our fallen state. He says, in that state, the mind is set on death and it's hostile to God. It's not friendly. It has not been restored to any peace with God. Why? Because it does not subject itself to the law of God. Why not? You see verse 7, the very end. He says, for it is not even able to do so. There's another word I'm pointing out to you, an explicit word of ability. The the, the fallen man in the flesh, he he can't follow God. He's not even able to follow God, to subject himself to the laws of God, to even including the command to believe. He's not even able. He's dead. He's lost. He's hostile. He's an enemy. He cannot please God. And you look at passages like this. Again, where's the mention of prevenient grace? that softens this harsh assessment of fallen humanity, it's nowhere to be found. There's not one verse on it. And here's a passage where Paul is actually contrasting or contrasting those in the flesh versus those in the spirit. I thought prevenient grace means the spirit has, has in a measure be given, been given to all. His grace has been given to all. We've been restored. Everyone's been restored in equal measure. You don't get that here. Those in the flesh, they're still in the flesh and they have not been worked on by the Spirit because they're contrasted with those in the Spirit. There's a difference. For the sake of time, I'll read for you Romans 14, 23. He says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. He's talking about Christian liberties, but notice the phrase, whatever is not from faith is sin. It's very similar to Hebrews 11.6, which you have later in your notes. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Those, remember the last week we read the illustration of, of the pirate living in his pirate career. And he's living in a state of rebellion against the government. Anything he does is only furthering his rebellion so he can do nothing good. Likewise, the unbeliever living in a state of rebellion, everything do is merely an extension of the rebellion, an act of rebellion. They don't approach God via faith, so everything they do is of sin. They're unable to please God in any respect. You understand, this is why all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Remember, that's from Isaiah. It's because it's not of faith. And the fallen man who has no faith, That means everything he does, even the things he thinks are good, they're not coming from a place of faith in God, from a place of honoring God. Therefore, it's all of not. It's all just a furtherance of his rebellion. Even the supposed good he does, it's not for God's glory. 
It's just showing that there's nothing good in fallen man. Joy, was that a hand or question or comment? Uh, it was more like it just seems kind of funny from our Armenian brethren that, like you said about Cremian grace and how they have the idea that there's a that there's something in man. I think the, I think I just find it funny that they hate. I feel like they don't like the idea of God actually doing something. Yet it's funny because they still pray for people's salvation. And so it's kind of a, kind of silly in one sense because I'm saying you're, you you pray for this person's salvation, but then yet you don't like it when God actually intervenes. Then you know what I mean. Yeah, I I totally know what you mean. So Joey was mentioning how it seems you could say ironic for Armenian brethren who reject these notions of God's sovereignty and salvation, yet they sure pray like He's sovereign in salvation, and, and that's very much the case. Which we'll we'll definitely point out later in greater detail that most people betray. Their, their thoughts or hearts, perhaps, you could say, in their prayers. That most Arminians I know, they certainly pray like God's sovereign and salvation. Otherwise, well, why are you praying? You should just spend your time convincing the person and don't pray. Just go talk to them because it's now up to them. God's already done his part and his, he's, he's backed off. That's not how they pray, nor the prayers we see in Scripture as well. We'll see that uh, in time come. Well, let's turn to Ephesians 2 now. I know we mentioned this briefly, but you can turn there now. And... I might contradict myself. A few weeks ago, I told you all to, to close the windows because of the traffic noise, but I think it's, we're, you know, spring's heating up. If anyone, if you guys see people are warm, so if you want to crack them open, do so. Get a little cross flow going. Knock yourself out. A little traffic noise is okay. It's better than an oven in here where, you know, it's late enough. There you go. All right, well, Ephesians chapter 2. And I know we read these first three verses before, but we're going to read them again because they precisely describe what we're talking about, man's fallen state. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We've already commented, but here's another passage, really one of the key passages on our spiritual deadness. We were, what's the state of fallen man? It's bad enough to call him enslaved to sin, but here you're, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. Dead people, and the analogy is on purpose. It's like in Ezekiel, uh, what is it, 37, the, the vision of the valley of dry bones. You see a battlefield, it's just skeletons. They, they can't do anything. They can't fight. They can't respond. They can't get up. They can't, you know, make a bed. They, they can't do anything because they're dead. They're, they're, in fact, they're just dry bones. Only, the only way they're going to be able to respond to any command is if God breathes life into them and makes them alive, which is what he does later in that vision, picturing God, what, what God must do for Israel and what he must still do for us, make you alive. God must do something because of our helplessness, where this verse mentions our deadness in sin. It mentions our enslavement to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. It mentions our fallen nature. We were by nature children of wrath. What's also special is, this: as the verse continues, the passage continues, it mentions the solution. Remember, this is the sin problem. We're also looking at the sin solution in, in weeks to come. This verse is so huge on it. Look at verse 4. So that's the problem. Pretty big problem. 
What's the solution? Do you think he's going to say, well, but thanks be to God that we chose to believe. Thanks be to God that though this was us, God gave us you know, a little bit of grace, enabling us to believe, and then we, we believed. We, we did our part. You won't find any measure of that, as you already know. But look at verse 4. It's all God. He says, but God. Nothing to do with us at this point. It's just, this is what God does to answer our sin problem. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seed with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's God's special grace. Not for everyone, not all are saved. But God saved us. All we can say is he saved us according to simply his love, his mercy. Can't explain it any more than that. It's just his the, the, it was his will, not, not ours. And he did that, and he did so that he might show off his grace toward us for all eternity. When you understand this, there's no room for boasting. Well, what did we do? We were merely recipients of his mercy and grace and love. He acted upon us. We were dead. He made us alive. Look, does God do this for everybody? No, all, all then would be saved because this is talking about God making us alive in Christ, raising us up, seating us in the heavenly places. It's clearly salvation. He says, for by grace you've been saved. This is God answering the sin problem. Not for everyone, though. Verse 8, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. You see, in verses 8 and 9, we're saved by faith, and that comes as God's gift. Our salvation by faith is a gift. And the result is that no one can boast. An unescapable conclusion, if the Armenian view is correct, that, okay, sure, maybe depravity is true, but God's prevenient grace has fixed all that, and you're all on a level playing field, and you just need to choose to believe. And so what makes me different from you, the saved from the unsaved? Well, I chose to believe, and you didn't. That's a reason to boast. For, for whatever reason, even God's foresight, he foresaw you were a little bit better, a little bit holier, a little bit more special. But whatever it is, you chose. It's all, it was all you now. And that's a reason to boast. You have reason that, that sets you apart. You are better than others because you are reasonable enough to see the truth. God, you're on a level playing field. It, it's really, you're the decisive factor in salvation, not God. That's reason to boast. But you won't find that in Scripture. We have no reason to boast because it's entirely by grace from start to finish. Well, I want to keep moving because we're going to finish this lesson tonight. We're not going to make this another parter. So I'll read for you 1 Corinthians 2.14. Another verse explicitly on ability. 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Another direct statement on ability. The, the man in the flesh, the natural man, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. Again, another verse contradicting the notion of prevenient grace, which we're not even studying for quite some time, but already you can see the problems with it. I thought the Spirit acts upon all. 
But here the natural man is saying, no, he, he can't even understand the things of the Spirit. He rejects the things of the Spirit. Why? Well, he can't understand them. He's not even able to understand them because they're spiritually appraised and he's dead. It's a direct statement on ability. He cannot understand. He's not able because he's dead. Fallen man, he can't even see the kingdom of God. So how can he get into it? How can he choose to enter the kingdom if he can't even see it? Many examples of this or illustrations like the, the fallen man, we're like a dog in, in a scientist's office. And the scientist, he solved the equation. He, he solved the problem of traveling at the speed of light. And he writes the equation on a chalkboard. And it's just, wow, what a breakthrough. And we're like a dog in that, cho- in that classroom. And we look at the chalkboard and we see just nothing. It means nothing to us. We have no eyes to behold that this, this breakthrough he made. It's like others have said, like, like a deaf person in, at a symphony or a blind person at an art gallery. You just you don't have the ability to see what you need to see to respond. We we don't even have the ability to respond as we need to. It gets even worse. Man's yeah, right? <laughs> Man's limited ability, bondage of will, and enslavement to sin, which we've already seen a lot of verses on, right? They're only further sealed by demonic influences as the unbeliever is also described as being enslaved to Satan. This you'll see the next set of verses in your notes, starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's turn there. These next few verses, and I hope you pointed this out if you did your homework. Hopefully you saw how these verses, they, they take our total inability to the next level, because not only is it bad enough just with our own flesh, our own sin problem, but... Our will is further bound because we're actually enslaved, not just to sin, but also to Satan. We've already looked at verses highlighting this, Ephesians 2. You also remember John 8, 44. Jesus said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. We have the natures of our father. Those in the flesh, that of Satan, those in the spirit, a new nature from God. And that nature comes with desires. And in the flesh, with a fallen nature, you want to do the desires of your father. You, that's, that's where your will is bent. You're free to do things, which you're able to do. But your will is bent towards sin. And here's a couple verses that profoundly teach the inability of our will because of enslavement to Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 3 and 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Look, not all can see the gospel. Not all see and believe, right? Why not? The gospel is veiled. Their eyes, there's a veil over their eyes, those who are perishing. Verse 4, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Since the fall, where we study the fall and Satan's role from the beginning, this is what he has done, the effects of the fall. He's now the God of this world, so to speak. And he has effectively blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He, he takes that seed sown by the road, 
hey, everyone is, the seed goes to everybody. Everyone gets a call to believe. But the evil one snatches it. They, they don't even have the chance because he snatches it away. He blinds their minds. The gospel is veiled to them. And they cannot see the light of Christ because of the blindfold. What must happen for someone to see? Well, look at verse 5 and 6. This is why Paul says, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why? We don't preach ourselves because we didn't have anything to do with it. We preach Christ alone and him as Lord because it was God who shone in our hearts. God had to lift the veil. He had to unblindfold us that we could behold the light of Christ who shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it, wasn't able to. And so God shines the light in our heart, lifts the veil, does something on the inside that we can behold the gospel and believe. Look, Paul still preaches the gospel. Of course we preach. We preach to all, but we trust God must do this work. In fact, we'll see later some say, like, if all this Calvinism stuff is true, then evangelism is pointless. You know, God will save whoever he wants to save, and so why bother? Well, you, you fail to realize only because God is sovereign in salvation is evangelism even possible. If God didn't open anyone's eyes, evangelism would be impossible because nobody could believe. You can preach till you're blue. No one even has a chance. But only because God is sovereign is evangelism even possible. And that's why we believe. We'll have a whole lesson on that later. But that's a, that's a huge verse. Our, we are blinded before salvation, blinded by Satan. Want something even more explicit? If that's not good enough for you, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's turn a few books to the right and, and go there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll start in verse 24. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So he's talking about believers from Timothy to even us. We're going to have to be quarrelsome, dealing with those who are in opposition, right? He mentions with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, very good teaching. But thereafter, he goes to teach about those in opposition. So speaking of, and this is unbelievers, these are those who oppose the faith, he says, we are to, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition, if, perhaps, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It, it really doesn't get any clearer or more explicit than this. We're talking about implicit teaching versus explicit teaching. Does the Bible depict the state of fallen man and his will as free or bound? We've already seen tons of verses that were bound and enslaved to sin. Here, it's, it, we're doubly damned because we're now bound and enslaved to Satan. Held 
captive by him to do his will. Hey, are you still free? Yeah, you're free to do whatever you want to do, whatever you're able to do. But these verses teach we're actually enslaved to sin and Satan. And so our will is certainly not free to do good or to choose God. We don't have the ability. And all that we're really free to do is going to be in accordance with our natures, which are enslaved. Which is why Jesus said, you want to do the desires of your father, the devil. This is, this is our position. We're held captive by Satan to do his will. Hey, we, we, look, we know people like this. And we say, if only they would come to their senses and escape from the snare, the trap of the devil. But the verse before explains how that's going to happen. <clears throat> who comes to their senses? Who are those who escape? Verse 25. Only those to whom God grants repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And when God does that, it happens. It's, it's a gift. He gives you faith and repentance. And when that happens, you come to the knowledge of the truth. You come to your senses. You wake up. Your eyes are opened and you believe. You escape. But who acts first? God. Who, who's, who chooses? Who's, whose will is it up to? God's. And our ability, that the point of this lesson, though, is merely to, to the state our ability is bound. Well, there's more verses. A few more on your handout. You can read those yourselves. You see our limited ability just described in our spiritual ignorance. Where Ephesians 4, we're futile in mind, darkened in understanding, and so forth. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The natural man, the, 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 the message we preach, it's not natural, it's spiritual. But to them, it's foolishness. It's dumb. It makes no sense. They can't, they can't understand it. It's spiritually appraised. They have no ability. After the fall, every part of man is affected by this total depravity. His intellect, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, his conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. His will, Romans 1.28. His heart, Ephesians 4.18. His entire being, Romans 1 through 3, pretty much. And so we, we pair total depravity and total inability, and it's, it's a bleak picture. You know, a couple weeks ago, when we say total depravity, at the end, I, I, I synthesized all that teaching, all the verses, and I basically just read you. If you just made simple observation, all those verses, here's the list you come up with. So I did that again for these verses on total inability. So... Again, the goal of this lesson is what does the Bible say about man's fallen state? And which system better accords with Scripture, Calvinism or Arminianism? Before we answer that question, here's, here's the summary. Here's the synthesis of all the verses from last week and this week on total inability. And so I'll read, follow best you can. According to the verses, unbelievers at present may be described as follows. In love with the darkness, unwilling to come to Jesus, unable to come unless granted by the Father, unable to know the Father unless revealed by the Son, enslaved to sin, bound and held captive, living not by faith but by the flesh, with a mind set on death, hostile to God, at enmity with God, entirely living in sin since not living by faith, by nature children of wrath, darkened in understanding, excluded from life because of spiritual ignorance and hardness of heart, unable to receive the spirit of truth, unable to see him or know him, unable to understand the things of the spirit, 
believing the word of the cross to be foolishness, unable to hear the call of Christ because they are of their father, the devil, can only hear his voice, want to do the desires of their father, blinded by the devil to the gospel, unable to see the light and be saved, ensnared by the devil, bound and held captive by him to do his will, unable to free themselves from the strong man, spiritually dead, unable to respond to God. Enough, right? Enough said. Uh, So you see, though, the testimony of Scripture on man's depravity and total inability to choose God, it's clear, it's comprehensive, it's also condemning. Man is in a sorry state. And there is certainly a picture of this in, in Lazarus. Dead in the tomb for four days, Jesus shows up and he says the most audacious thing, Lazarus, Come forth. Who would ever say such a thing to someone who's been dead for four days? They can't come forth. They can't hear you. They're dead. They're a corpse. You've seen a corpse. They can't hear you. They can't respond. They can't wiggle a toe. They can't do anything. Lazarus had no ability to respond to that call to life. What had to happen first for him to respond to the call to come forth? What did God do inside the tomb at that moment? He brought Lazarus to life. And then he could obey the call to come forth, to walk forth. Life must come first. And that's what God does. Until man receives a special call from Christ, special grace, bringing him to life, he's not able to respond to the general call that goes to all. Unredeemed man is a spiritual corpse made worse by his enslavement to Satan. His will may be free to do evil and to do the desires of his captors, sin and Satan. But there's no verse depicting man as free to choose God, to answer Christ's call, to do good. To the contrary, we've seen just a flood of verses saying you're not, you're explicitly not free and able to do these things. Again, at this point, Arminians will try and write off what the Bible says about all we just studied, total depravity, total inability, they'll write it all off with one stroke of a pen under this concept of prevenient grace. And we're going to fully study God's grace in later lessons. We'll get there. But already, just from the verses we read, it's fair enough to say, how are non-Christians described in the present? Did we find any verses that say we once, you know, were like theoretically depraved, but because of God's general grace given to all, we're now better, we're restored, we're able to choose, able to do good, able to believe. There's not a single verse on that. That that is another implicit doctrine that must be believed to fit the system. Otherwise, the system crumbles. But in all these harsh condemnations of man's freedom and ability, was there a single caveat that said, well, you know, man's bondage to sin and Satan like, well, was once true, but God's prevenient grace has undone all that, enabling all to, the, to respond. There's none. There's not a single statement. Man is everywhere depicted right now, presently, after the fall, before salvation, lost, blind, enslaved, dead, totally unable to respond to God. Man doesn't have the power to know God or to do good because of the effects of the fall and original sin. We inherit a sin nature incapable of pleasing God or meriting his favor or even responding to his call. God must do something first.
You might ask, well, what does this mean for man's free will? Well, what, what does it say about free will? Well, we'll talk again, again a lot more about free will when we get to the topic of grace. But for now, it should be plain to see for the unbeliever, his will is limited. His will is limited. I have no problem saying you have free will. Yeah, do you have free will? Sure. Your will is free. You're a free agent. But freedom has bounds. You have boundaries. There's limitations on your freedom. Namely, your ability is limited. Therefore, your free will is limited. You're only free to do what you're able to do, right? If you don't have the ability to do something, you're you're saying you're free to do it is meaningless. And with a defiled heart, man is is not free to do many things. In fact, his will is better described as bound and enslaved. You know, it's like going to the market. You can say man has the freedom to go to the market and buy whatever he wants. But his freedom is limited by his wallet. If he has no money, if you've got no money, you have no ability to buy any food. So you could say, like, I'm free to buy whatever I want. But if you're broke, you're actually not free to buy anything. You have no freedom. It's pointless to, to speak of your freedom at that point, it's better to say you're broke and actually you're maybe enslaved to debt, you could say, and, and you're, you're not free. Man's will is limited by ability, and that's what's happened to man's will after the fall. His ability to know or serve God is lost. That's why Luther said, a lost liberty is no liberty at all. Free will becomes an empty term. It's better to speak of a, ba- a bound will bound by sin and Satan. Joey? I was going to piggyback off. It's like a, a guy saying I have the freedom to swim underwater, but he can't breathe. You know what I mean? So he can't really, if he can't breathe underwater, he's not really truly free to, to do anything. Yeah. Sense, it's against his ability. Exactly. And you can think of a lot of illustrations I commonly use. Jumping to the moon or, you know, Teresa just went to the Grand Canyon. That's another one I use, the Grand Canyon. It's like, that, and that's a great illustration because it depicts the chasm between us and God. We're on one side of the Grand Canyon. God is on the other. And the chasm is, of course, our sin problem, which separates us from God. And we can't cross. Something has to, to happen with this sin chasm. And God is calling to us, is come on over. Here's life over here. But we can't respond. We can't do it. We can't cross the chasm. It's too big for us. We can't jump across. We don't have the leg strength. We don't have the ability to make that leap. You can say a man is free to come to God, but with ability being limited, he's actually not. We're enslaved to our ability. And if we don't have the ability, it's pointless to speak of our freedom. Again, as a side note, I don't get too caught up with the, the notion of free will. So many Arminians want to debate free will. And look, have your free will. You're, you're as free as, as you're able. But the real issue is limited ability. And when you understand that, free will, in this discussion, it's irrelevant. You don't have the ability, therefore, it's meaningless to speak of that freedom. Your will is bound. Unless God bridges the gap and calls us across enables us to to leap over the Grand Canyon, no one's going to do it. No one can do it. None will be saved. God must act first. And this, again, is why salvation in Scripture is everywhere depicted as being by God's grace. God's grace must change us and enable us to cross. And to finish our time tonight, just by way of a preview, 
This is why, you know, we're looking at the problem and then the solution in the future. This is why every verse that talks about the sin solution, i.e. salvation, it's always about God's supernatural grace, sovereign grace. God must do a, a divine, radical work of regeneration. Prevenient grace is not enough. That's the problem. God must do more. He must regenerate. You remember Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Remember that verse. It speaks of sin. Our sin problem, it's not like a bad habit, like smoking. You can just choose to quit. Our sin problem is way deeper, as we found. You can give up your sin problem as readily as you can change your skin color. And of course you can't. And the point though, salvation requires a miracle greater than changing your skin color. It requires a miracle of changing your whole nature. You don't have that power though. Can you change an orange tree into an apple tree? You have no power. This is a work that God must do. He must do the impossible. He must perform that miracle and change us. And so you look at God's, for example, in the Old, Old Testament, his uh, new covenant promises, like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where God says to them his promises of salvation. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Notice the cause and effect. When will the the believer walk in God's ways? Only after God has done all that. He's been made alive. Given a new heart. A new nature. God's spirit within him. That's salvation. Then God will cause him to walk in his ways through the spirit. This is what God must do. And no wonder Jesus said in John 3, when he comes on the scene, you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. There's, and that's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Just like you did not control or have any say in your first birth, so it goes with the second birth. You are passive. The Spirit must work upon you to bring you to new life. John 5, 21, Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, like the Valley of Dry Bones, like Lazarus. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. That's not fair. Thanks, Rod. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I've been looking for this that's right and that's good uh, that verse was probably stuck in your mind because we, we opened with that verse so it brings us first full circle full circle in that uh Tongue twister. Full circle now, rather, to John 44. And I will thanks for that, Joe. So that, overall, that concludes this teaching on the sin problem. So far, in this study on the doctrines of grace, we've actually spent all of our time 
studying the sin problem. We haven't talked about election or predestination or any of that yet. Remember, this whole study is about salvation, really, and God's role and man's role in salvation. Who's responsible for what? Is it up to God? Is it up to us? Do we cooperate? Synergism? Is God the active agent? Is it his work? Monergism? We're not going to get any of that right unless you understand the sin problem first. So I'm glad you've been hanging with me and you're, you're laboring through all this study on the sin problem. It's going to pay off. Trust me. We've done the fall, original sin, total depravity, and now total inability. And we found, well, a big problem. We have a fallen nature, inherited guilt, depravity in every part of our being, totally unable to do good or choose God. You're, you're a free agent. You're free to, to choose what you're able to choose. But you see, our will is bound, enslaved to sin and Satan. So the freedom to choose God has been taken away. And so in that regard, we are not free, but bound. All this goes to say, I, I hope and trust, you won't be surprised to find, as we now move forward, that Scripture teaches God must do a sovereign work in our hearts if we're ever to believe, to respond, to choose God. He must first even choose us. And then we'll come next week and enter, finally, the concept of election. We'll move on and now get into what God does and what he must do. Next week and the weeks to follow, it'll be several weeks, we'll begin to get into election. All right, that'll do it for tonight. We made it right on time. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Redeemer, we exalt you this evening. We thank you for all this study in your word. It's always profitable. It's a lamp into our feet, guiding us into the truth. Your word is truth, Lord, and I pray you sanctify us in the truth and, and as we reflect on what we've learned. Lord, in a, in a sense, it can be discouraging, depressing, because, wow, what a bleak picture of us. But I pray, Lord, at, at the same time, though we've done a lot of good Bible study tonight, uh, as we take it to heart, we remember uh, Christ, who we already know to be the sin solution. We, we know the end of the story, although we haven't gotten there, Lord. We, we here already know Christ is the answer. You sent your son in pure grace to live, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that he might give us new life, paying for our sins, giving us his perfect righteousness. Lord, you, you've already solved our sin problem, and you did so by your grace through Christ. And as we reflect on that, our old deadness, yet our new life in Christ, Lord, I pray like Ephesians 2 said, like we learned, that we are merely trophies of your grace. And we do what trophies do. We, we brag on, on the maker. We, we, we give glory to you. We simply highlight your grace in our lives. And I pray as we leave this evening, Lord, we're encouraged and reminded of what was done for our salvation to make us trophies of grace. And we live simply exalting you more. Those who see this in Scripture, who minds, whose minds have been opened to these truths, we should praise louder. We should sing louder. We should uh, worship deeper and truer, Lord, because we know more of what you've really done for us, even beyond what we were able. We thank you for this, Lord, and we do give you the glory. And may we lift up our entire lives to you in praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.